You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you guys joining the show every single week. We have great news. Our website is now live, hazardground.com. Has a whole bunch of our previous episodes, tells you more about our guests. It has photos, uh, has a place that you guys can eventually get some gear as soon as we uh, get that part up and running. But uh, just a, a great source of information and just another way for you guys to connect with the Hazard Ground podcast. Also, don't forget to get on iTunes, give us a rating and review. That also helps us get the word out about the podcast. Follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're on all of them. Uh, I'd love for you guys to check us out there as well. We have an absolutely fantastic guest this week, and it is our first Medal of Honor recipient. His name is Ryan Pitts, uh, and he was involved in the Battle of Wanat in Afghanistan, and he joins us now on the Hazard Ground podcast. Ryan, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, uh, I don't know where to start because you're our first Medal of Honor recipient, so there's a lot to get to here, obviously. But let's start at the beginning. How did you get into the military? Why did you join? Oh, how did I get in? So, I, I mean, I was just listening to other podcasts, you know, that you guys have done over the over the years and, and listened to, you know, other people's reasons. And I know September 11th comes up a lot because you know, that was my generation. That's why we went to war. But I was a junior, I think, when September 11th happened. And when I think back on it, you know, I was, I lived, in, I live in Southern New Hampshire, grew up in Southern New Hampshire. And it, it's kind of sheltered up here. And, you know, I think that the events at that time, it didn't fully hit me. I didn't fully understand what it all meant. And fast forward to my senior year and it starts coming time to, to make a decision. You know, all my friends are getting accepted to college and it's, hey, it's, it's time to make that big decision. What do you want to do with the rest of your life? And I didn't feel like I had any firm grasp on it. I didn't know what I wanted to go to school for. Um, I knew that, you know, my parents could help out, but, you know, I didn't want to waste their money while I went and tried to figure it out. And some of my friends had enlisted or, and were looking at it and figured, you know what, I, I go serve my country. You know, it'll buy me some time. It'll help me pay for school. And that was really my impetus at the time. I guess it was trying to delay an adult decision <laughs> and get some money for school. And I always look back on that and felt kind of uh, ashamed of that, that, you know, after serving, looking back on that, I wish that it had just been out of the sense of like, not looking at, you know, what am I going to get out of this? Because it's such a privilege um, for me just to have been born here, all the opportunities that we have that we just don't even realize uh, we're afforded on a, on a daily basis. And then I really wish that I had gone into it thinking of, you know, I owe something to this country with no expectation of anything in return. Uh, and I got also just so much more out of it uh, than college. Right. Um, just the life experiences and the relationships made with, with the guys I served with. Um, it was really invaluable. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. And I've told this story a couple of times on the podcast. I mean, I was like, you know, I was in ROTC, but I made all these decisions prior to 9-11. And the only reason I did ROTC is because I went to a fairly expensive private school and I needed the scholarship to help pay for it. I mean, that was, I didn't ever envision that I would do anything beyond my four-year commitment uh, to the military and would never look back. And it was just a way, a means to an end for me. And, and so it has worked out entirely different. And here I am sitting nearly almost 20 years later into a military career wondering how the hell I'm still here. Uh, and and I, I, like you, feel the same way. I wish I had more noble intentions when I first signed up. You know, I, I recall a lot when I was a senior in college and I had all my fellow classmates going to job fairs and things of that nature. And they're like, aren't you going to job fairs? I'm like, no. And they're like, why? I'm like, because I have to go in the military after. That's what you do in RTC. You go on active duty. And they said, well, why don't you get a real job? I mean, little did they know that, you know, a real job happened in 2001 when 9-11 changed the world. But that was just kind of the mentality back then. So I certainly can empathize and sympathize with, uh, with what you were feeling. But uh, sometimes, you know, not only does the Lord work in mysterious ways, but the Army has a tendency kind of to give back to you what you put into it one way or another. Yeah, and I mean, I don't, I don't look down on that motivation at all. I mean, we all join for different reasons, right? Some people join for college, some for citizenship. Others, you know, because they don't know what I want to do, whatever the reasons, it kind of doesn't matter because once you get there, you're all in it for each other. Right. Um, and all that just fades away and, and you, you find your purpose. So when you went in, did you have anybody else in your family who was in the military or were you walking into boot camp having no idea what you were getting into? 
walking in, no idea what I was getting into. What did you expect? Uh, oh, geez. I don't know. You know, it's funny. I always think about that, that I think about going into boot camp and as a civilian with no, you know, background on it. You know, I think you're going to go in and I'm going to come out the other side like this, just absolute warrior. And it's really <laughs> boot camp is, is like tearing down the house and building the foundation. You know, it, you're going to learn how to march. You're going to learn how to zero your weapon. Uh, but you know, the real meat of everything that happens is when you hit your unit. And, uh, I heard one of the other guests talking about, it, it might've been Joel talking about, you know, it feels like prison, yeah. like with guns, you know, your <laughs> life is not your own. You don't get to make any decisions. You don't get to choose when you sleep, when you eat any of those things. And, uh, it was just a, a rude wake up call from, you know, the relatively easy life that I had led up to that point. And that's funny, the Joel you referenced, Joel Carpenter, a previous guest on the Hazard Ground, he was in Hollywood. Like, he was in Southern Southern California and decided to get into the Army, and all of a sudden, that world changes rather quickly. So it, it, sometimes it's a culture shock for all of us. Now, when you get out of basic training, what's your first assignment? Where are you going? And, and like, this sounds like it's your first foray away from being home. Was that, was it, is that the case? Yeah, yeah, no, that is the case. I mean, I'd never been on a plane before I went to basic <laughs> training. And I'd never been, and this is comical, I'd never been further west than the state of New York. And I went to Oklahoma <laughs> for basic training. And I mean, that in and of itself was a huge wake-up call from, from the hills of New Hampshire to, you know, the, the plains of Oklahoma, I guess. And uh, I, when I went in, I, I went in just kind of knees of the Army. I, I'd gone in as a 13 Fox, as a Ford Observer, and not picked a duty station. I wasn't airborne or anything like that. And when they were there, they asked for volunteers for airborne. You know, I, they tell us all the, the per, you know, you're going to jump out of planes. Oh, yeah. And by the way, if you end up in an airborne union on jump stash, you get an extra $150 a month. Yeah. Well, as a, as a, as a private making, you know, $900 a month before taxes, an extra 150 sounded like a pretty good deal to me. And uh, jumping out of planes sounded cool. So I, I raised my hand for that. And after basic, found myself at airborne school in Fort Benning. And uh, came down, my duty station was going to the 173rd Airborne Brigade in Vicenza, Italy. Uh, beautiful place. Uh, lucky, lucky, lucky. But uh, so you as a field artillery guy, that's what a 13 Fox is. And you, you basically are you're putting a lot of heavy rounds all the way downrange on the enemy. Um, what year is this uh, as far as where we are in the war on terror when you get to Italy? I get to Italy in February of 2004. And for a little context at that point, uh, the 173rd was just getting ready to get to come back. And, you know, for me, I was I was excited to be going to this airborne unit, <clears throat> this elite unit. But at the same time, you know, I'd watched enough movies to know, like, you don't want to be the replacement. And these guys had just jumped into Iraq, northern Iraq, you know, about a year before, you know, just in the spring of my, my senior year. So that's right around when I was getting there. So when do you get to your first actual deployment? And is it Iraq or Afghanistan? First deployment in Afghanistan, I was there uh, with the 173rd for a little over a year training up, and we deployed to the first, uh, my first deployment in the uh, spring of 2005 to south, uh, southwestern Afghanistan. All right, so when you get there, this is, now you're a long way from New Hampshire. Uh, obviously, this is, you know, sights and things that you've never seen before. Uh, what were you thinking and feeling when you got to that first deployment, and what was your mission? I mean, I, I remember we did all this train up, you know, we had all this experience of these guys that had been to Iraq and, and I felt good going into it with the leadership we had really at every level. Um, and, you know, we're excited in the sense that we're, we're getting to go do our jobs. Um, you know, there's that, that fear of, you know, I don't want to let my buddies down, you know, we're, this is what we trained for. We're going to do, <clears throat> you know, I guess the Super Bowl right, no. <laughs> for, for yeah. a soldier as you, as you train and, you know, I'd always taken my job very seriously as a as a Ford observer, recognizing that, you know, our job is to help bring big guns to support the infantry. I was attached to a, an infantry company. And, you know, the, the, at the same stroke that we could play a big role in the battlefield, you know, the importance of being good at our jobs, because if we make a mistake, you know, a lot of people, good people can get injured or killed, you know, if we get around in the wrong place. Um, so, you know, a lot of nerves and a lot, a lot of nerves just from that aspect, but also just, you know, I... I had no idea what we were getting into just going to Afghanistan. I mean, it was like going back in time, you know, people living in, in mud huts without electricity or running water. And it was just um, surreal is the best word to use. What sort of uh, enemy contact did you encounter on that deployment? And, and what was that experience like? Because obviously you'd done the train up, but, you know, real combat live fire is totally different. Yeah, I mean, 
I learned more in my first 30 days on the ground there than I did in the two years before not knocking the two years before because uh, our leaders did a, a hell of a job training us up and, and preparing us. Um, but, you know, as you probably know, you just you learn so much more there being in it, um, you know, went into that deployment at that time. You know, the focus was on Iraq, Afghanistan, I kind of felt was like a, an afterthought. You know, we're thinking we're, we're going to go there and hand out blankets and beans. Um, and yeah, we did some of that, but we got into plenty of fights. Uh, our first one, I think we got there in April of 2005. We we're in our first major firefight on May 3rd, 2005 uh, in the Argandab Valley. And our scalp platoon had, had gotten into contact. They had a Humvee that was damaged and on fire. And we got spun up as QRF. And, you know, that is in itself just, you know, totally disorienting as you're scrambling to get your stuff up to the, uh, the, the helipad and uh, you know just get ready to go out there and you're running off the back of this helicopter not knowing what you're getting yourself into uh, we ended up fighting all day through the night into the next day uh, and you know I guess coming out of that it just was a I don't even really know how to describe that experience I, it took me a couple of days to process what we had been through when you think back to it what do you remember most about that whole experience I think it was incredible to me that in all this chaos, because the battlefield was just absolute chaos. They landed us on opposite sides of the river. Our third platoon went in on one side and I was, uh, I was in, they split up our platoon and I was with part of first platoon on the other side of the river. Just that out of all this chaos, you know, we were all marching to the same drumbeat um, and just everybody working together and continuing to move fire. And, you know, we had people get wounded and go down and guys ran forward to treat them and you know first set a perimeter and fire back in the enemy that just how much everybody fell back on their training and did exactly what they were supposed to do and, and you know in all this chaos when everybody should be you know ducking for cover these guys are standing up and, and firing back and you know it just amazed me how everybody just kind of lifted each other up uh and you learn that whatever you thought you were capable of before you're, you're capable of a whole lot more well, and that kind of leads, I don't want to get too far into July 13th, 2008, but when you see your fellow platoon mates and, and squad mates and do that sort of thing, how much does it really affect you mentally to say, well, it's, when the time comes, I'll do the same thing? It's, it's expectations, right? I mean, you, you come into the unit and there was, you know, stories of guys before I even got there. You know, I just always remember the story of uh, Sergeant Holbrook and these guys in first platoon that had been ambushed in Iraq and Sergeant Holbrook, I think had been shot in the stomach and he drove the Humvee back to the base. Wow. Right? So you hear stories like that and he was with us on that deployment and you see these guys do that and you understand that like, that's, that's the legacy of our unit. That is the expectation. Uh, and you want to live up to that. You don't want to let the guys down around you and you know that they're going to do that for you. You owe it to them to do the same. Did you ever ask him about that experience? No, no. See, that's I, like me. I would have walked out and said, listen, hey, man, so you got shot in the stomach and drove home? Like, can you, i just curious what was going through your head. Like, were you in pain? You never had the urge to talk to him? <laughs> no, but I mean, even on that deployment, so, it, you know, there was a fast forward just one month, June 21st, there was a, a massive firefight. Uh, our guys were, were in a village and had basically, you know, stirred the hornet's nest and ended up fighting up this hill. And there was this other guy. He got shot uh, right right around his collarbone, and this this round had gone in in there, traveled along his chest cavity, and exited out his ribs, but it didn't hit any of his vital organs. I mean, that guy walked down off the mountain, you know, and all the guys around him continue to fight and you know keep their cool and do what they're supposed to do. Um, you know, those things I guess motivate you because you're just like, I hope that when the time comes, you know, I hope I have the medal that those guys did. Did you lose anybody on that deployment? We did. We did. We lost one guy, Staff Sergeant Michael Schaefer. Okay, and so on, what was that experience? Uh, that was uh, it was July twenty fifth, two thousand five, and you know, I I had never lost anybody before, and, and that that shook me, especially you know when you lose somebody in combat, it's because somebody else has taken their life, um, you know. But you know, he was just another guy. We we. QRF'd out to support the special forces unit that had gotten in contact in this village. We were on QRF or RC South in Afghanistan at that point. And we started clearing this village when, when all hell broke loose and, and guys were just popping out of the ground and 
all over the place. And there was this one room that let down underground and uh, the platoon leaders, you know, asking, you know, who's going to clear it. And he, he gets ready to get in the door and Sergeant Schaefer grabs him and says, Hey, you're the Lieutenant. You're not, you're not doing that. And he guy stacks up on him and they go down these stairs. Uh, and as they round the corner, there's, there's two enemy in the room and just the way it was, you know, Schaefer tried to push his, his team leader back and was shot and his team leader, you know, scrambled back out and told us what was going on. You know, another guy went down to try and get him and he got shot and, you know, we ended up popping smoke and more guys went in there and we got uh, Sergeant Schaefer out, but he had been killed at that point. Um, but it also amazed me on that day how, you know, this one guy, had, Sergeant Schaefer had been killed. We didn't know it at the time, but another guy had been wounded trying to go down in there. It's dark. Nobody knows what's going on. And when the guys kept going down in there, there was smoke. They dropped a smoke grenade in there. And, you know, guy after guy was lining up to, to run down in there. And you couldn't really take your weapon if you were going to grab them or you couldn't have it at the ready. It was, you know, go try and grab them and drag them out. And these guys lined up and, and they did it. Wow. Um, but that uh, that was a hard day for us. The, the, we were in a number of firefights on the point. We had a lot of guys wounded. But uh, Sergeant Schaefer was the only guy that we lost. At what point when that happens with that regularity, um, does your mindset start to shift? We, we talk about it a lot on the podcast. You know, I, my first deployment, I ran over 75 combat convoys throughout Iraq. And, and there are certain days I just would wake up, you know, and this is a, so you're basically figuring one every three or four days if you're, if you're there for a year. Um, and, and, you know, you wake up and you're like, well, today's the day because bad stuff is going to happen. It's only a matter of time for you can roll the dice so many times before you throw a bad number, so to speak. What was that like for you? I don't know. I guess I didn't really think about that that much. I mean, when you have all this time ahead of you in the deployment, you know, you're three months in and there's nine months to go or whatever. It's just, I, I always took it as day to day as, as chow is breakfast, lunch, dinner, repeat. And I, I tried not to think too much beyond just the day I was in. You couldn't really even think about the end. Um, and I mean, I guess I didn't really think too much of my own end. I mean, seeing that you, I think we all knew that it was a possibility, um, but you can't dwell on it. I mean, we all had a job to do. And, you know, just there's guys relying on you and you're relying on them. It's interesting. Uh, not many people. Have, uh, I mean, everybody has that approach of kind of just taking a day at a time. But um, there, there's there's always a sense because combat's so random. You know, there's always a sense that, that, that your number could be called. Yeah. And I, I heard you talk about that on, on one of your other podcasts. And, and I agree. I mean, there's a there's a measure of luck in it. There's no rhyme or reason. Um, you know, sometimes it's, it's not because a guy was, you know, doing the wrong thing or bad at their job. It just, it happened that day. Um, and sometimes, you know, it's, it happens because the guys are good at their job. Yeah. And sometimes they're, they're, they're doing exactly right. You know, they're pushing the envelope and they're, they're leading by example and they're putting themselves out there for their brothers. And, um, you know, for me, I think of anything that's always motivated me and the guys I serve with, because we see them putting that, that sort of dedication forward that we owe it to them to honor them by at least matching it to the best of our ability. Okay. So this deployment ends, you get back and you start to regroup. When, when is it? Um, and what was it like trying to reintegrate back into normal life again? So I think we redeployed back in would have been March of 2006, time frame around that time and uh i remember you know we're all you're all excited to get back because that's all you're thinking about um you know our leaders they were they were very good about you know putting in our heads hey guess what we're not done until we're boots on the ground back in italy uh so don't think that you're, you're done here there's no chance that we could get called out regardless of how close to the end we are um but you know it came and you know excited but i remember getting off the bus and i think there was a number of us this happened too and you know they dismissed us from formation and now i'm just like all right, now what do I do? Like, <laughs> what do I do with myself? And I remember going back to my room and I just thinking like I put my gear down. I'm like, okay, so now what? Like I don't have to clean a weapon. I don't have to get my gear get ready for the next mission. I don't have to sit through an op order. Like what? Am, what? 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 It was almost foreign to kind of have that freedom again, um, and and just to go from this environment where you're always ready for a fight you know, at any time and you could get called out at any time that to just peace. And uh, I think I had the same idea everybody else did. I, I went over to the PX. I was like, let's spend some of this deployment money. <laughs> What'd you buy? 
I don't remember. It was probably like an Xbox or something. Yeah, it's, it's good enough. It's a, it's a worthwhile purchase. Probably and Taco Bell so I could get some real food. It, it always boggled my mind when people would buy like TVs at the PX. I'm like, how are you getting that thing home? Like when they were at on deployment, you know? I'm like, what, yeah. how are you getting that thing home? What are you doing with that thing? So anyway, but uh, the strange thing soldiers do with a lot of money on a deployment and boredom. It's a bad combination, a uh, soldier with money and boredom. All right, so um, when you start uh, getting trained back up, uh, wh- when do you get notified that you're going back, you know, back over, and, and what's that whole situation like? I mean, we knew. I mean, at that point in time, 2006, you know, everybody's on the same rotation of you're home for a year, you're gone for a year. You know, you're either on deployment or you're getting ready for the next one. Um, and we, we knew it was coming. You know, we didn't know exactly when, but we knew we had 12 to 15 months before we were going back. And for me, I had, uh, I had enlisted for four years originally, and I was going to I was going to get stop lost. And I actually ended up being stop lost. I think I hit. I think my ETS date was like three months after we were in Afghanistan. And uh, yeah, I mean, the train up, it, it helped having that first appointment because you I don't want to say I took it that much more seriously, but I understood the importance of it that much more right that every trading opportunity was important you know i had seen on the first deployment just you know at any time yeah you have a dedicated medic to your your platoon but you know anybody can be a medic in any at any point right and and just the importance of cross training and i think that just bled over to how i tried to train the soldiers that i was responsible for to try and make sure that they knew their jobs really better than i did sooner than I did. I wanted them to be a you know better private than I was. And, you know, understanding the importance of PT. I mean, they, they PT'd the hell out of us before we went, knowing that we were going to be climbing mountains. Uh, and so we, we took the same approach, getting ready for the second deployment. The second deployment is back to Afghanistan. What time frame is this? Yeah, we deployed uh, around the same time, I think May of 2007. Uh, is when we deployed them. This time we deployed to northeastern Afghanistan. We were in Nuristan, Kunar province. What was your mission this time around? Uh, you know, same thing. Uh, support the government, uh, find the enemy, and, and destroy them. Um, this was different from our first first deployment. We were down in Zabal province in, uh, in Kalat. And that was, you know, yeah, there were mountains, but we were along Highway 1. And, you know, you drove over this relatively flat terrain a while before you got to the mountains and we weren't walking the mountains uh, that much fast forward to this deployment uh, where we're at. And, you know, the valleys where we were, were you know, probably no more than a kilometer wide. And it went straight up to the biggest mountains I'd ever seen. Um, and we walked uh, a lot um, and it felt like a, a very different fight. I mean, our first deployment, we air assaulted a lot. You know, I felt like we had, we had the enemy on their heels. We surprised them a lot, you know, with, you know, dawn pre-dawn air assaults uh this time it was like you couldn't leave your fob without the enemy kind of knowing okay they're going somewhere i feel like after your first deployment you know you go into this one much more alert much more i don't want to say cautious per se but you go into it with with more just awareness about all the things that can happen did that help or hurt you in a certain sense no, I think it, it absolutely helped. And I mean, we'd heard, we, we got, we had had the opportunity when we were training uh, in Germany for, for the unit that we would be ripping with. Some of their leadership came back and, and gave us the lay of the land. Uh, and so we had an idea of, you know, the, the tenacious type of enemy that we were going to be fighting. Uh, and that was a, a, a huge help, um, you know, and just, you know, the discipline from the first one of understanding, you know, just always do things by the book, do things right. You know, we, uh, when I think about, you know, some of our leadership, you know, it wasn't always fun, but you know, you'd walk up, we weren't going to be in the Valley if we didn't have to, you know, if you weren't in a Humvee, you'd, you'd climb for an hour two, three hours, and then you would move out. You know, we weren't going to give the enemy the opportunity to have, have the high ground, you know, if it was at all possible uh, to avoid. And, you know, that, that was, um, that affected us a lot. This deployment was the one ultimately, you know, that you were awarded the Medal of Honor for, but that didn't happen until the very end of the deployment. So what happens in the time in between? Are you, are you seeing as much combat? Are you seeing as much enemy fire and, and things of that nature throughout the whole thing as you did on your first deployment? Or was it different from that standpoint? So we're, my platoon was at the battalion FOB in uh, Nagalam, 
and we did a lot of road patrols, but our other sister companies and uh, our other platoon, it really particularly at the, the beginning of the deployment, our sister companies like Battle Company and, and people I'm sure have heard of Restrepo, um, you know, that was our sister company, Battle Company, and they were getting in contact almost every day. You know, our Able Company was being in, in contact almost every day. You know, the guys running the supply, the guys and uh, the men and women running the supply routes were getting in contact constantly. For our platoon, it was it was quieter. Um, you know, I, I don't really remember much contact, you know, through the initial summer for our platoon. That being said, our second platoon was located, I want to say, they were probably about 20, 25 kilometers north uh, in the upper Wago Valley. And where they were at, they were operating two bases, um, Bella Outpost and Ranch House. And both of these fire bases really uh, could only be resupplied by helicopter. They could only be accessed by helicopter. You couldn't, you couldn't get there by Humvee. Um, and in August of 2007, the enemy conducted a, a major assault on Ranch House. Uh, they had actually breached the wire and infiltrated about half of the base before our guys were able to repel them. Uh, and I, I, I mean, they were doing gun runs inside the wire of this base. And, and it, that was um, something we had never seen before. I mean, we had been in fights before, but nothing like that, because this base was on the side of a mountain. I mean, just hanging off the, the helicopter landing zone was the roof of this building built into the, the side of the mountain. You know, if a Chinook came in, it couldn't even land all the way because the wheels would go through the roof. You know, they were staying at max power to kind of almost like hover land. Um, and this, we just knew, you know, especially after that fight, that this was going to be like nothing we had experienced before. Uh, and even after that, in November, we had broken down Ranch House at that point, And First Platoon was still occupying, occupying uh, Bella Outpost. And they had done a patrol back to the village of Aranis, where Ranch House had been previously, uh, had stayed overnight. And on the way back, they were ambushed. And, you know, we hadn't lost anybody at Ranch House. We had guys get wounded, uh, but we ended up losing six guys uh, on that patrol back. And we, were you on that patrol as well or no? I was not on that okay. patrol, but that is the patrol that Kyle White was on. Gotcha. Uh, another okay. Medal of Honor recipient yep. from our company. And our, our platoon was uh, QRF to go out there and help with the, the support and the recovery. And uh, I remember going out there and seeing that ground, and it was just the absolute worst ground you ever possibly could have fought on. It was just this goat trail in this valley, uh, and the enemy had taken the high ground. Uh, and, and, I mean, hearing the stories of what those guys did were, was absolutely incredible. Um, but after that, our platoon ended up going up and ripping out with 1st Platoon and taking over uh, Bella Outpost. Uh, for those who aren't military who are listening and who have never been to Afghanistan, even if you are military and you haven't been there, uh, it's really indescribable, the terrain. Uh, they're real, it's just for the average person who lives in America, you'll see nothing like it anywhere in the world. Um, there are, there, there's a solid chance two Afghan villagers who live a mile apart, separated by the terrain, would never see each other in their lifetimes. Just because you can't traverse the terrain without you know, really wanting to. Um, and and uh, that plays a, a, a pivotal part in a lot of the major conflicts in Afghanistan, as you can speak to, Ryan, just because... You know the terrain and the high ground is so important in battle, and uh, you know the guy on the high ground has a much better advantage point than the guy on the low ground. And most of the places where we had to stay were on low ground because that's where the valleys were. It's where you could put buildings and things, and so we were automatically putting ourselves at a disadvantage from people who had lived there their entire life. And I think that creates a certain, you know, there's a certain comfort for the enemy in knowing the terrain better than we did. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, freedom, freedom of movement. I mean, uh, in, in their country, they're they're not wearing uniforms. Yeah. Right. So if they put down their weapons, they can come in and observe and watch and and then go back and develop their plans. And uh, to a certain extent, you're you're somewhat fighting on their terms. From where Bella was, and I think the other outpost there was called Blessing, if I remember reading correctly. Yeah. Okay. So th that position um, you said was on the side of a mountain. When you went to, to fill backfill the platoon that was there and you got there, I mean, how remote are we talking? I mean, are there hard stand showers and buildings, or are you guys just kind of really in austere conditions at that point? It was like the Wild West out there. 
Um, so ranch house was the base that was on, on the side of a mountain. Okay. And just, to, I mean, for their living conditions, they were basically, those guys were living in sheds, uh, oh, wow. and okay. taking camp showers, you know, filling up those, those bags, yep. laying it out on a rock and, and showering, you know, when they could eating MREs every day. Cause there was no, no hot chow out there. Uh, and just, you know, guard rotations and patrol that, that, that was, that was life. I mean, it was a smoker just walking from the lower end of the post to the upper end of the post. I mean, you might climb 200 meters in elevation or more. Wow. Um, just, just moving that far. And then Bella outpost was in uh, the base of the Valley. Just, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe 10 clicks from ranch house, maybe less, but this is all still like so far removed from blessing. You really felt like you were out on the edge of the world okay. uh, by yourself and, and blessing. I'm sorry, Bella was the base itself. I mean, same sort of conditions. I mean, the buildings were just, almost like sheds that people lived in on, you know, plywood bunk beds. Uh, the, the whole base was built around the HLZ and the whole base itself there was, could fit inside a football field. I oh, mean, the right. perimeter, it's, it's right up against the river on one side and road on the other. And you're looking straight up and we had an OP called OP one, uh, about 200, 300 meters up the mountain. Same deal. You, you're living in sheds, you're doing your, your guard rotations, um, and they were really the the tip of the spear when when any sort of attack kicked off there, we'd take a rocket or or get in enemy contact, um, and it was it really was it was like the wild west out there. So it's embracing the suck of the suck, so to speak. Yes. Okay, and, and I just it, go ahead. It, it's you know it's one of those things where, but you're out on your own, and you're kind of like fully living, you know, in the mission. Um, so, I mean, it's, it wasn't without its, its benefits, I guess. Yeah. And, and I just want, you know, people who, to understand, even whether military or not, just to understand their conditions and, you know, obviously living that lifestyle for lack of a better term, sometimes it can grate on guys, right? I mean, you, you, you can have kind of breakdowns in societal norms, if you will, guys get more irritable, um, you know, th- th- cause they don't have creature comforts and things of that nature. Did any of that go on? You know, I, I, I didn't see it. Okay. I think if more than anything, you know, it brought us closer together because you're living on top of each other and really the only entertainment you have is the guys that you're with. Um, you know, and being up at the OP as, as hard as it was, you know, we did guard and then, you know, we shot the breeze together, you know, waiting for, for a fight to happen. Um, and as hard as that was, I think it, it made us more cohesive. I can see that. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and some of that comes from your leadership more than anything, right? If you have good leadership that's taking care of you guys and everything else, it makes it a lot easier to deal with those conditions. I, I, we've had people on this podcast who have lived in the similar conditions in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we've seen breakdowns, and most of that is due to bad leadership. Yeah, I, I mean, the way I've looked at it, and it was a huge lesson for me, is here you have this horrible situation, you know, not great living conditions, you know, the threat of always being in a fight, but the people that you are with can make it. I mean, it's strange to look back and say, you know, I had some of the best times of my life with the guys I served with in those conditions. Right. And and at the same time, you can have something that's great, but if you have the wrong people together, it can be awful. No, no, hundred percent true. Perfectly stated. Okay. So let's fast forward. You have now moved up to where we call it a combat outpost Bella. Is that what technically what it was? Yep. Okay. So you got combat outpost Bella. How long were you there for before July 13th, 2008? So we went up in November and we ended up staying there through the spring uh, and eventually ended up leaving and heading back to Blessing. And when we were at Blessing, as we had been talking for the, the previous year about our leadership had wanted to break down Ranch House and Bella because it was just so far out there, so hard to resupply, uh, so hard to reinforce if there was a large attack, like what had happened with the Ranch House attack, that we had wanted to break those down and move up into the village or whatnot. And as we knew the next unit coming in was going to be uh, manned less than we were, they were going to have less combat experience, that you know now is the kind of the time with after breaking down ranch house, the enemy, the attacks were stepping up at Bella. 
the intel was indicating more so that they were going to try and do another ranch style type attack to overrun the base um and just with the difficulties of supply and reinforcing that you know decision made hey it's time we're not we're not getting any benefit out of this we're keeping guys up there just you know to get shot at and fight back uh and you know we're all doing the best we can but the best decision to to make our mission successful would be to move back to or not be closer to the the center of government for that region uh and and affect the people in that way and so it was decided when we got towards the end there that we would break down bella and simultaneously move up to Wanat. okay um and let me just understand just from your your viewpoint alone with Bella being where it was and it not serving any purpose, was it a leadership thing that denied you guys from doing it sooner? Or was it just something that you needed the time to plan? Because from what I'm understanding, what I'm gathering from the reading and both talking to you is that, as you said, I mean, this thing was pretty exposed and, and the enemy had a lot of time to coordinate attacks. And that's typically not common for them. I mean, most of their ambushes were hasty, right? But you guys were facing coordinated attacks because it was such a weakened position. Am I correct in that? I think coordinated attacks were commonplace just even in that region. I mean, I think okay. our battle company ran into it. Able company ran into it. Um, you know, I didn't fully understand the delays until actually much later. Uh, there's a book that's been written about it and in reading the book, you know, learning about, you know, just the politics that happened, even just with the Afghan government um, and, and having to get approval to close bases and, and resources. Um, to close the base and airlift it out of there. Um, you know, the, the, the theater at that point, I think there were a lot of, that was a commonplace in a lot of places. There were a lot of units that had these remote outposts that the idea was to spread out and take the fight to the enemy. And, and it had changed a little bit uh, in the, the, the strategic intent of, you know, pulling back to maybe some population centers. Um, so, it was, you know, it was a mix of resources and politics, I guess, without, you know, fully knowing about it. That's just been my understanding of it. All right, take me through the events, let's say a week to 10 days out before July 13th. You guys are closing down Bella and you're, you're, you're reconsolidating back. So when you get the, the, the word that this is happening, is there like a, a sense of relief finally or what was kind of everybody's mentality? It wasn't a sense of relief. I mean, to be honest, at that point, you know, we were about, you know, we're saying two weeks before we go, we're a month from going home. Okay. Um, and you know, we we knew we were going to spend our final, you know, two, three, four weeks up standing up this new base. There was going to be nothing there. We were going to pull security while, you know, uh, contractors came in and started building this new base. And we knew that, you know, breaking down Bella, these guys are just going to come down the Valley, uh, and attack when not, you know, and, and from our standpoint, you know, we thought, you know, the smart thing to do for them would be to hit us before we have really our defensive positions set, you know, permanent in this village, you know, set up Pesco's and have started building real fortifications. Um, but, you know, at the same time, you know, we understood that, you know, we're not done until we're done. And part of it was, you know, it's our job to set up the next unit for success as well. And we still had a mission to do. And so we, we spent those, you know, two weeks leading up to it, preparing, coming up with the plans, doing our sand tables and, our off order and getting all our supplies in order to, to go up and execute the mission. How achievable did you think this mission was when it was laid out? It, it, we thought it was achievable. I mean, the idea Bell is going to break down. Those guys are going to come first. platoon is going to pull out of there. We're going to move up to Wanat. We had contractors laid on to bring in heavy equipment. We we're going to set up Pesco's. We had engineers coming in. We, you know, we had our, we we're going to have our gun trucks, um, you know, there was nothing saying it's going to be easy, but nothing's easy in the military. Sure. How how much were attacks picking up, or was it the st- was it steady in the days and weeks leading up to June thirteenth? Bella, they were picking up. Um, it, it, it were not. There had been, you know, our leadership and our platoon had done some patrols in the months leading up. You know, and there had been some more. We had gone up before over the previous year and never really been attacked, uh, and they were getting attacked pretty regularly going up there you know, in the months leading up to us moving to Winot as, as the enemy, I think probably understood that was, you know, our intent. I mean, you, you kind of were signaling that to them one way or another. I mean, we're going up and having, you know, meetings with the, the village elders okay. and, and, and working on the plans to set up, you know, basically in the center of this village. Um, you know, and it's, it's hard to tell who's friend or foe. 
Sure. Yeah. In certain cases that, you know, you think those meetings are, are helping you, and, but they could be hurting you, as, as you mentioned before. You know, none of them were in a uniform, so it's hard to tell who's what and who does what when, when you're not looking. Um, did, did the intelligence that you were getting there lend to the fact that this was, you know, it was the best decision overall as far as for combat power and economy of force and things of that nature? I, I mean, I, yeah, I was an E5 okay. at the time. So it wasn't like I'm sitting in the talk here in this <laughs> intel, but you know, from the way that it was explained down to us, yes, it made sense that you know, we have this unit coming in that's going to have lower manpower, less experience. You know, we can't just break down Bella and have nothing, no presence up there, uh, especially by this what was kind of like the the district government there. Um, and so, yeah, it, it made sense to to what we were doing. All right, so you go to bed on the night of July twelfth, two thousand eight expecting what to happen on july 13th well so we i think we went up on july 10th um and you know i think the whole time we're up there every morning you know we do our stand to get up before the sun came up i mean every day was you know we were expecting this is going to be the day that we're going to have you know a significant attack um but i think at that point we'd kind of started to think like okay maybe they are going to wait uh but you know that didn't we weren't any less vigilant because of that. And we woke up that morning. We were going to do a patrol that day. And we had woken up early as we always did before the sun's up, you know, doing our stand to pulling our security, actively scanning. And, uh, sun had been up for a little while. At this point, we had a uh, tow missile truck that had been attached to us from our testing company. And they were scanning, uh, with the tow and it spotted some guys up in the mountains I think this would have been to the West and pretty high up. And I mean, nobody goes for just a hike in Afghanistan. There's no pleasure hiking over there. You're up there cause you're going somewhere. You're going up there to, to fight and shoot down on somebody. And uh, about that time, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready to work up a, a fire mission cause you know, we see weapons on these guys and we think they're getting ready to attack. And uh, right around that time, I can remember standing up. I was in this observation post uh, that was just outside the village. The way we had set up when we went in was we set up our vi- vehicles in this open field uh, in the middle of the village, right next to kind of the hotel and the bazaar and all that stuff. And that's where our main force was. We had another squad kicked out uh, to run a TCP on the uh, traffic control point on the road. And then we had this small observation post uh, that was about 100, and 100, 150 meters outside the, the post, a little bit further up on this spur. Is that what and- was referred to as OP topside? Yes. Okay. All right. And yep. for anybody, just for anybody who's going to research it, OP topside is what you're talking about. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And, and it really was just a, a series of sandbag fortifications on these terraces because the hills, you know, this is in this village in Afghanistan, kind of in general, they build these terraces on the mountains so they can, so they can farm just these flat stepped terraces. And we had built our fortifications there. So we had established OP topside uh, using, you know, the kind of the natural terrain to, to have like a sleeping quarters that was, that had cover. And then higher up on the terraces were a number of uh, sandbag fortifications. And uh, as I'm standing there. And that was just, up, I'm sorry to cut you off. I just wanted, that was that OP topside was at a higher elevation. So you could look down over where you were building the post, correct? So it wasn't that high. I mean, by, you know, doctrine, it, it probably, it wasn't where, you know, you'd want to put an observation post. We would have wanted higher terrain. And in talking our Lieutenant, Lieutenant Brostrom, you know, his methodology, I mean, at this point in time, we hadn't built significant fortifications. I mean, we'd been hand digging in the days leading up, filling sandbags by hand. And, you know, this is July. So it's, you know, probably a hundred when we're waking up and 110, 115, you know, once the sun's in the sky and uh, we'd been doing our best to build these fortifications, but he didn't want it so far out that it couldn't be reinforced, you know, just from what we had seen at ranch house, uh, with the enemy trying to, to, they weren't just trying to fire, they were trying to overrun. Um, and, you know, the same kind of deal had happened with uh, Battle Company in the Korngal, where they had tried to capture one of our guys. And, you know, out of that incident is where uh, Sal Genta was awarded the Medal of Honor. Um, so his thinking was, you know, a little bit further out, so maybe we have a little bit more visibility, just, you know, provide a little bit more warning for the, the base, but not so far away that it couldn't be reinforced. Makes sense. Okay. So you are at OP topside when you wake up that morning. Yes. Okay. Yep. And, and like I had said, we're, we're getting ready. I was working up the fire mission. This is, you know, the sun had probably been up for 30 minutes or so. We're, we're 
getting ready to do this fire mission when all of a sudden it's just this burst of machine gun fire rang out from the north and, and the observation post was just rocked by rocket propelled grenades and, and hand grenades. Uh, and just, it felt like the air was exploding, everything, and the whole base was being hit. I mean, they were being RPG'd, and it was just like the world exploded. Uh, and at that point, I I was wounded right off the bat. I got thrown into one of the fighting positions and had taken shrapnel to my legs, and uh, I had my bell rung, and I, you know, I was just disoriented. And and all the guys, there were other guys, I mean, one guy, uh, Gunner's Willing, was killed in the opening volley, but all the other guys in the post, I mean, immediately started just firing back and and fighting back uh and it, it took me you know a, a minute just to to kind of get my bearings and figure out what was going on i just looked down at my legs and i could see you know all these shrapnel holes and in, in my bdu bottoms and you know even in my boots and i remember looking down and you know trying to move my legs uh and couldn't you know just telling myself hey you know just just wiggle your feet move your legs and i just i couldn't and i had seen I saw this large hole uh, on my inner thigh and just, we had done so much training leading up. Everybody, you know, in our unit was able to, you know, did turn a kid, knew how to do a needle chest decompression, treat a second chest wound, IVs, all that. And, you know, knew enough about the anatomy to know that, you know, the major artery that runs through the inside of your leg. And I thought, you know, there's a chance maybe that's hit. You know, I got to get a tourniquet on this leg, but I had taken some shrapnel on my left arm and didn't really feel like I could work the tourniquet on my own. And I could hear other guys fighting. And I was in the, the northernmost position uh, and crawled to the southern position where uh, Specialist Jason Bogar was. And he's standing up, return of fire. I could see the other team leader that was in the observation post, Matt Gobble. He had been hit with shrapnel. He's wounded. Um, you know, Bogar turns around and looks at me, and he can see, you know, all these shrapnel wounds and me bleeding all over the place. And uh, looks at me and he's, he's asking me, "Hey, what do you need? I, I need a tourniquet." And uh, he puts a tourniquet on my right leg and uh, I'm, I'm sure that saved my life. Cause I mean, a lot of the trauma happened to my right leg. I think even if I hadn't uh, hit a, my femoral artery, I, I would have bled out just from the, the amount of wounds that I had sustained there. And uh, I, it always struck me how calm he was. You know, this, this wasn't his first deployment. He had previously uh, deployed, I believe, twice to Afghanistan with the National Guard, uh, but then had come to our unit as a replacement. And, you know, he when I got into that position, he's standing up, firing right back on the enemy. He turns around, sees me, he treats me, and goes right, right back about his business. Uh, and, and that was always just amazing to me. And, and all the other guys around were doing the same thing. And these are junior guys. I mean, a lot of these guys... You know, Bogar was a little bit older. I think he was 25, but the other guys up there were 21, 22, maybe. I think, you know, some of them probably couldn't even buy a beer <laughs> back in the States. And, you know, in the, la- in the absence of leadership, I mean, Gobble and I were the only two team leaders up there. And, you know, none of these guys have been in a fight like this before. They just, you know, fell right back on their training and yeah. knew exactly what they had to do and did it. You know, it, it, I'm sorry to cut you off. It, it strikes me, not you know, not only how calm Bogar was, as you said, but how calm you were. I mean, how, you know, the idea that you're bleeding to a point that you know you need a tourniquet it was, was you, you didn't go into shock. You didn't start to freak out mentally. I mean, you seem pretty calm about that whole decision. I mean, because usually for those who don't know, a tourniquet means you're going to lose the leg. We, uh, we had learned enough at that point. You know, we had had other guys get tourniquets. And I believe that deployment, other deployments to know, like, all right, it's going to have to be on there a while without being treated. Okay. You lose, lose the leg. And, but even if at that point, yeah, I'd rather lose my leg than lose my life. Sure. Makes a lot of um, sense. <laughs> it's an easy so, decision when you put it that way. But that, I guess that's, you know, it's hard to think about all that when people are still shooting at you. I, I guess. I mean, I, I'd seen, been in enough fights with the other guys to know that fear is contagious. Sure. That I, makes sense. It, and it's, it's, it can be an infection in you if you let it take hold. And, you know, I guess we'd always just been taught, just keep trying to do everything in your power to do your job. You know, when I just think back to that first point in that story I mentioned earlier about that guy who took the round in the collarbone and exited out his ribs on the other side, you know, and he walked himself down the mountain. You know, how many people would just want to give up and be like, nope, I'll wait for a litter. You know, and this guy, you know, walked down. And I'm sure he wasn't just sitting there while he was fighting. Um, 
And so it's just everybody's got to keep it together and think about the next thing that you can do. Uh, and, and I think, you know, there's also you draw strength from each other. You know, I'm looking at Bogar. He's doing his job. All the other guys are, you know, it's, it's just you just got to try and do your part, too. You know, and I talk about that this in our uh, on our eastern flank, just above where I was with Bogar a little bit was what we called our, our crow's nest position. It was just up another terrace. and It was the same sure. bag fortification. And that's where our gun team was. And these were all junior guys. Their team leader there was 22, maybe, uh, Pruitt Rainey. And they had a, they were just man in their machine gun, returning fire right back on the enemy, trying to gain fire superiority. I know they were being hit with rocket propelled grenades, accurate, you know, small arms fire. Uh, Pruitt, you know, took control at that point and started directing his gun team and trying to get a handle on what was going on up at the observation posts. Uh, and so you just, you, you got to contribute. And, Go ahead. No, I mean, I, I'm just, I, I've seen visual depictions of the battle, and you're talking about what everybody's doing, um, and you said, you know, the, the night sky lit up or whatever, it was just at dusk, and it seemed like it was coming from everywhere. I mean, all this was happening simultaneously, the, the attacks on OP outside, the attacks on the base itself, the attacks on the perimeter, all this was going on simultaneously? I mean, was oh, yeah. it that coordinated of an attack that where the first one fired, everybody started letting loose? Yeah, it, it honestly, it, when I think back on it, it's like how we would initiate an ambush. Right. I mean, it's probably a closed bolt weapon. You know, started with a burst of probably AK fire, and then that was the signal for everybody. And they had us surrounded. They had the high ground. Um, you know, I've heard the estimates are anywhere between 150 and 300 enemy fighters. There was 49 of us on the ground. Oh, uh, we were augmented with a, a platoon of 20 or 30 A uh, and A in their their Marine embed training team. Um, but everybody, I mean, this wasn't just the OP being hit like this. Our, all the gun trucks down on the, uh, the, officer, uh, the I'm sorry, the main vehicle patrol base, I mean, they were getting slammed. Uh, there were bullets that, you know, Mark 19s went down because they took, you know, bullets through the feed trays, feed oh, tray man. covers. Uh, you know, 50 cals went down. They were smart. I mean, they targeted the, the tow truck right off the bat. They uh, concentrated RPGs on it, and, and credit to that crew. Those guys, you know, Sergeant Grimm and, and May and uh, Davis, they, they all stayed in that truck as long as they could. It caught on fire. And, you know, it wasn't until they couldn't hold that position anymore that they, you know, then vacated that truck and moved to other fighting, other fighting positions. We're going to pause Ryan Pitt's incredible story right here this week as his story is very detailed and very lengthy. So we wanted to make sure that it's possible for people to listen to the podcast in a relatively easy amount of time. So we will pause right here in the middle of Ryan's story and pick it up next week on the Hazard Ground Podcast. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 